Let's open our Bibles to the 24th chapter of Leviticus. And what we'll do is point out some things, some verses and some things related to these verses. And you can look at these verses, if you will, and we'll read the first four to get the beginning of what we'll have to say here on this part of it. And these are very important verses, and so also the next uh, several verses. But uh, let's look at verses 1-4. through four. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil olive, beaten for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, shall Aaron order it from evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. And so remember we had, uh, when we taught the tabernacle, we had the seven branch candlestick on this side in the holy place. And we had the uh, on the other side the table of showbread. And both of these will be brought up in this particular passage of Scripture. But in teaching the tabernacle, we taught that in, in detail. So I don't see any need to uh, really go into too much uh, detail on it. But we will give you a gist of what we find here. So in these first four verse, verses, the candlestick speaks of Christ and all His uh, deity. You know, uh, if you remember, it was a seven-branch candlestick. And seven is a number of completion or perfection and perfect light. So the light is symbolical of Christ as the light of the world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then he tells us since he's gone that we're to be the light of the world. And he says, let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And uh, the lamps were to burn continually. And this was signifying the uttermost power of Christ. He's a continual burning light. And the oil that fueled this light is symbolical of the Holy Spirit. Oil in the Bible is uh, almost without a doubt, from the book of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy especially, and over in some of the prophets, especially Zechariah, is symbolical of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed with the Spirit. Look in John chapter 3, verse 34. John 3, verse 34. And Jesus is speaking here of the Spirit. And he says, For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. So he tells us there that, uh, that Christ himself, who speaks of the Father, who speaks the words of God, has not received the Spirit by measure, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. And then another one is in Hebrews chapter 1, and this is a good one. It says in verse 9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. 
Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is symbolical again of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember in verse 8, Hebrews 1.8, it says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Then he says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So here it speaks of Christ being anointed uh, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, that is, the Holy Spirit. Now then, uh, we could give you more symbols of the of the all representing the Holy Spirit, but I don't think that would be necessary. We'll just continue with our uh, comments on these first four, four verses in uh, Leviticus chapter 24. Now then, the lamp is to burn from evening until morning. We read that in the context. From evening until the morning, showing forth that the brightness of Christ increased rather than decreases. And His brightness is increased. You know, remember John said He must uh, increase and I must decrease. But Christ increases all the way through. Now let's read verses uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in 24. Leviticus 24. It says, And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings uh, of the Lord made by fire, by perpetual statute. Now, this is the table of showbread. We had the candlestick on this side in the tabernacle, and the table of showbread over here on this side. And these loaves were to be bacon, these cakes, uh, twelve cakes, and twelve representing the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So that all of the all of the children of Israel, all of God's chosen earthly people at that time, were represented by these twelve loaves. And of course, uh, it was to be food or eaten by Aaron and his sons, the priestly family, at a certain point in time. But they were to be there a certain period of time, and then they were to be replenished as God had commanded. So, there's a lot of things we could say about the, this uh, showbread. We'll just give you comments on these particular verses as we go along. First of all, these verses give us God's plan for the bread that was to ha- be had in the, within the sanctuary. And uh, this bread was made of fine flour. And this fine flour was symbolical of the sinless life of Christ. He was... Ground, ground very fine. Everything about him was perfect. Didn't have any lumps or rough places in his life. He didn't have that in his life. And he was perfectly 
without sin. The Bible says that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And the frankincense is symbolical of his sacrificial life. The fragrance of his life. And of course we know that when he died that they brought frankincense to anoint him. And at his birth there was brought the frankincense too. Symbolical of the fact that there would be fragrance not only to his life but of his death. And the priests were to eat the bread. This is symbolical of the sustaining power of Christ. The sustaining power of Christ. And I think that would be sufficient comments on that particular portion of the uh, Scripture here in Leviticus 24. And then we come to another section, and it covers verses 10 through 23. And this is a son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian. And we're going to... You can glance at it. Well, let's go ahead and read it. Beginning with verse 10. It says, And the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian. By the way, this shows us that uh, this son didn't have everything going for him because he had a mixed marriage. The the woman was Israelite and the father an Egyptian. And uh, it shows you the fault of mixed marriages. Uh, Egypt is a type of the world. And here's a woman that was of Israel. And then her son grows up to be what he need not be. And a lot of times we can trace the, the uh, problems that children have in families back to fathers and mothers where there's marriages that are not, well, a sa- let's put it this way, a saved and unsaved. And uh, that's why uh, Paul held us in the Corinthians, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And that is a marriage yoke as well as uh, all other kinds of yokes that people may have. A business yoke. Uh, don't, don't yoke yourself up as a Christian with someone that is uh, an unsaved person and expect that, that you'll do business in the same way. Because you have a consciousness about how you deal with people and, and many times some of the others do not have a consciousness. They want to get it any way they can. And uh, there's always... Let me turn over there. I think I've got some notes in that particular part of my Bible that I can point out several kinds of yokes. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Second Corinthians chapter 6. And it begins... Always have a few notes in the margin of my Bible, as some of you know. And uh, so, here you have the commercial yoke that's in the business partnership. And that's not good to be unequally yoked. Look at verse uh, 14 as the main verse. Be be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Let's read verse 15. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Or what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. 
So he wants his people to be separated. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now the ones I have down here, you might want to copy these down. The commercial yoke, that's a business partnership. You're not to have that kind of a yoke with unbelievers. The matrimonial yoke, that's the domestic partnership, being married to uh, an unsaved person. And uh, we're told, told how, in cases where that is, that is uh, true in the Corinthians, how you're to deal with it. One is try to win the other and uh, be faithful to try to win the other to uh, the Lord. And, of course, Peter tells us much the same thing. He tells us that, uh, that a, uh, let me read over here. I believe it's First Peter chapter 3. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. This is First Peter chapter 3. Uh, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. That conversation means the whole walk of their life, the way they live, their manner of life. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even ornaments of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. So he's saying that the main thing is to present yourself as a, a woman, a lady that will be a testimony to her to her husband if he's unsaved and he may be won by the manner of his wife. Uh, so you can see that the matrimonial yoke is very important. And sometimes where there's a case that there's not uh, saved and I mean both persons are saved that uh, one may be won by the walk or life of the other. And he tells that also in Corinthians. Now then, uh, so what we see, let me go ahead and with these yokes while I'm on that subject, and then we'll get back to Leviticus. So we have the commercial yoke, that's business partnership. We have the matrimonial yoke, that's the domestic partnership. We have the fraternal yoke, that's another one. And of course, that's the social partnership. The social life of a believer and an unbeliever. That's very important. Do not be yoked together with people that in their social life, they're gamblers and they're drinkers and they're uh, out here living in the world and for the flesh and so on. And that's not the kind of company you want to keep if you're going to keep yourself uh, serving the Lord. You say, well, I'm not to be isolated. No, you're not to be isolated, but you're not to be compromising your convictions by going along with those kind of people and living with them in a social relationship. Choose the kind of people you want to associate with. And if you don't, you're looking for danger in your life uh, and trouble in your life for this reason. They do not have a spiritual life 
But you do have a carnal life and a carnal, a carnal nature. I don't mean a carnal life in that sense, but you still have a carnal nature. And so you both have the carnal nature and they're lacking the spiritual nature. So you've got two strikes against you to start with, right? And one more strike and you're struck out. So you can see why, because all of us will have the carnal nature until we die. And we're going to have this warfare between the flesh and the spirit. And why then aggravate it by having an, an unsaved person who does not have a spiritual nature to lead you in your social life and to associate with them because you're likely to be tempted above that you're able to bear and fall into the temptations. That just stands to reason. So that's why you need to choose the kind of people you run around with as a Christian. And there's no better... I talked to a man in Walmart the other day. He's been laying out a church for the longest. He used to come here and told him to come back to church. He says, you know, my wife and I have been talking about that. And we find we know that the only place we can find a really true fellowship is in the church. Well, having known that, well, what do they do? They still lay out. And that's where you're going to find Christian fellowship is in, in the house of God and with God's children, God's people. Well, why go other places? And why even, even if you don't go other places, neglect that fellowship that you need? And that's their case more than anyone, anything else. It's not that they run around with the wrong crowd. They just don't run with any crowd. And they just stay at home. And they not only need the fellowship of Christians, but they need also the uh, teaching and preaching of the Word and the, and the uh, worship together and all the things that, that we have in the local church. So anyway, pray for them. That's an unspoken. So I won't call any names. But anyway, we find people that, and they've been telling me, you know, they, they need to get back in church. And sure enough, they have nothing standing in the way except just the determination to get up Sunday morning and get to the house of God. That's all that's, that's there. But anyway, we find that uh, there's also the ecclesiastical yoke. That means the religious partnership. We're to have that in the church. And we're not to, uh, when we talk about the ecclesiastical or the church uh, fellowship, we're not to be in association with churches that have false religions and teach false things, especially even in the name of Christianity, we'll find that there are many cults. And so don't rub shoulders with them because they're going to lead you astray by false doctrine, false teaching. You, you study your Bible and, and you check it out for yourself and see what it says. And if I, if I ever preach to you something that's not scriptural, you let me know about it. I want to be the first to know. And if I can't prove that what I say is scriptural, I have no business saying it. Neither does any preacher that stands in this pulpit, regardless of who he is. And that's why I don't call upon 
uh, too many outsiders because I don't know what they're going to say. I call upon the men of the church. When I'm gone, I want them in charge. I don't want to get some fellow from Timbuktu and let him get up here and, and fill your heads with a bunch of stuff that you don't need to be fed. You say, well, preacher, you're narrow-minded. Well, maybe so. But I'm, I'm concerned about the flock that I teach and lead. I want them to be led in green pastures beside the still waters instead of over the cliffs and the valleys where there's uh, thorns and thistles and all kinds of things that will uh, cause you problems. So, that's who will be preaching when I'm gone a few days. And I'm going to plan on being gone a few days one of these weeks and uh, see my son and and go to the fellowship meeting down there in Arlington about the middle of May sometime. And anyway, I'm planning that. So I'll be gone one Sunday. I'll be gone a whole Sunday. And, uh, because it wouldn't work out for me to be here. It'd be too short of a trip to do all I need to do. But anyway, be that as it may, uh, we'll get back to this what we're talking about, the son of this Israelitish woman, and we'll talk about it a little bit. And uh, let's read it. Back in Leviticus chapter uh, 24, and we picked up verse 10, the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel stole together in the camp. It brought strife, didn't it? And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord. And cursed. And they brought him to Moses. And his mother's name was uh, Shalomoth, the daughter of Deborah, and of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. By the way, blasphemy against the Lord was uh, punished with death. And this scripture is going to show that the Bible teaches capital punishment in certain instances. In fact, there were other things that brought about capital punishment. You read Exodus and all the laws in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You'll find that there are certain things that, that brought about the punishment of death. And uh, we have so many nowadays that do not believe that sin of a terrible nature should be punished. They just say we've got to uh, rehabilitate. Well, that's good as far as that goes, if they can be rehabilitated. But if you have people that commit such crimes that, uh, that are mentioned here. So in verse 13, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that had cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. The penalty and sentence of death. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And uh, he goes on to say, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him as well as the stranger and as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he be put to death. And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. For the murderer 
there's the the uh, death penalty here. And he that killeth a beast shall make it good. Beast for beast. And then, of course, you have the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which was exacted under the law. But we have judgments and laws today to uh, punish those that do evil. But we also need to realize that there are certain sins that uh, deserve stricter and more severe punishment. So I'll make a few comments on this passage of Scripture. Let me get down to them. I believe I have them here. Uh, This boy came from a family that was with different religious views. We already mentioned that. Think of what could have been the cause of him being like he was. You have an Israelitish woman. You have an Egyptian. You have two people with different religious views and backgrounds. So you don't know what's going to happen to children. That's why we need to be careful that we have this holy yoke and, and uh, get people to be married in the bonds of, we call it, holy matrimony. And that would be the, the two Christian people being married, joined together in holy wedlock. And then you're less likely to have the problems that some of the families have this day and hour. And it doesn't mean that God will not work a miracle from time to time and, and save the other one and, and then the children be brought up. In fact, sometimes the children do not end up like uh, they could under those circumstances. I've seen children that were brought up in the most awful circumstances turn out to be uh, a Christian and accept the Lord and be saved and start living for God and the parents not either one living for the Lord. And then it's vice versa. The parents may be dedicated to serve God and, and the children will not listen. And so you have all kinds of situations in different families. And there's exceptions to all rules. But this, his mother was an Israelite and his father was an Egyptian. His family relations made him the object of ridicule. Probably some ridiculed him because his father was an Egyptian. And this shows the ill effect on a, of a mixed marriage that we've been pointing out. And when a Christian marries an unsaved person, the fruit of that relation is likely to be a blasphemer. It's most likely that they'll turn out wrong. Children are apt to take the worst side instead of the best side. The sin of this young man was cursing and blaspheming. And judgment was not hastily given. Remember, they set him aside for a while. They examined the situation. But when they found out what had happened, remember what it says? That he was, uh, uh, it says, and they in verse twelve, and they put him in ward that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. He was given opportunity to be examined concerning what he had done, and of course in verse fourteen it says, "Bring him forth, uh, bring him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all." Uh, that heard him later. In other words, they all had to lay their hands upon his head. And they had to all realize that all of them were responsible to take part in what God deemed the judgment upon this one. And judgment was not hastily given. And judgment always belongs to God, not to us. 
There wasn't some hothead that came along and said, okay, well, we're going to judge him. Or someone that came along and said, well, never mind, he's, he's in a family relationship that we just should let him go on his own way. And that will end up like the Virginia thing that we just heard of on the television. And that's the way many things end up. And we should always uh, know that uh, the mind of God concerning these things before we proceed to do anything as far as our business is concerned. Then we find that uh, the hands of the accusers were the first to be placed on the guilty party. If they, if they could not be the ones that accused him, they would have to stay out of the situation. He was to be executed without the camp so as not to defile the camp. Every member of the congregation was to stone him to show their zeal for God. And those who had once helped stone a blasphemer would have less desire to commit that sin himself. You know, if you have a part in the judgment of someone else, it'll be less likely that you'll commit the same sin. That's why judgment and prison and these things are deterrent to crime. And you know, that's why we have so much crime on the rampage today because there's, there's so many ways that they can get out of the punishment. In fact, so many of them seem to have drawn a get-out-of-jail-free. And so punishment has to be meted out when a crime is committed. And these verses give a definite proof that there's that kind of punishment. I'm not going to read all of chapter 25 and 26 and 27, but I will give you some comments on it. And as you read it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But <clears throat> there was in chapter 25, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee that's pointed out. And it's doubtful whether the Sabbath year began with the civil year or the sacred year of the Jewish calendar. They had two different calendars. One was the, the sacred year and the other was the, the uh, uh, civil year. And they started at a different time and ended at a different time and their months were different as well. In fact, I have a... I don't know if I have it in my Bible. It's probably in my briefcase if you want to see it sometime. Uh, the difference of the months of the civil year and then the uh, and then the uh, religious year or the sacred year, and so we find also that in this passage of scripture you'll find the word jubilee. In jubilee, there was the year of jubilee, and in the Hebrew it means a joyful sound. And we find also that slavery had already existed among the Hebrews in a modified form. And although not at once it was absolutely forbidden, it was put under the law with great restraints. They had great restraints on slavery. The Israelites were never considered as slaves, even though they served. They were bought once for all, but their time of service was like that of day laborers are engaged from year to year. Remember, there were we read about a, a servant over there in the book of Exodus that was uh, set aside 
to serve his master because maybe of indebtedness or something on that order. And he would serve uh, six years. The seventh year, he was to be set free. Remember that bond servant we talked about? I believe it's Exodus 21. Let's turn back to Exodus 21. I believe I have the right chapter. And we'll read it there so you can see. Exodus 21. Yeah, beginning with verse 2, it says, uh, If thou buy an Hebrew servant, uh, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the, or into the door post. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. You see, that's the Hebrew servant. And what was the condition? He was to be set free. If he came in with his wife and children, they could all go free. But if, meanwhile, if he came in by himself and he married a wife and he had children while he was there, well, the wife and children belonged to the master, not him. And so if he chose to go free, he had to leave his wife and his children. But at the end of the six-year service, if he said... I love my master, and I love my wife, and I love my children, and I will not go free. He would voluntarily go to the doorpost, and they would bore his ear through, pierce his ear with an awl. And that was a sign of perpetual servitude. And he, he was saying as much that I will serve him from now on, because I want to stay with my master. I love him. I want to stay with my wife and my children. Of course, this is a great picture of the Lord, isn't it? In fact, in one of the Psalms it says, Mine ear thou hast bored. Jesus took that sign of perpetual servitude because he loved not only his father, and he loved his wife, or he loved the children of God that were given to him, and he loved that service, and he would not go out free. So Jesus actually became the divine servant that was a perpetual servant. And it was for your sake and mine that he took uh, this office and this uh, servitude upon himself. And it should indicate that you and I have a choice too. We can say, I want to serve the Lord because of the blessings he's given me. Now, Paul said, listen carefully. Paul says, you shall be free indeed. The Bible says, that you're free. In Galatians, he says uh, that Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. But also, Paul said in the beginning of his letter to the Romans and the Corinthians, he says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Well, even though he was free, he willingly became a bondservant. And the word there is very strong. It means a slave. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, he was not made to be a bondservant, but he chose, like this 
Hebrew servant in the Old Testament we've been reading about in Exodus chapter 21. He chose to be a servant. So we could go on with all of those thoughts in the book of Leviticus. In fact, we'll turn back and go on and give you uh, some more things. Because we find comments on the 26th chapter 2. We have the blessings and the curses upon Israel. And we'll try to give you comments on that. And the reason I'm summing this all up is because in the book of Exodus, we've covered a lot of this ground. And uh, I think just the comments strictly on the verses, uh, the chapter here, of the 26th chapter, where you'll have the blessings and the curses pronounced upon Israel. They were not to have a, uh, an image of figured stone. It was an image of stone. They were not to have that. And uh, when they came into the land, the old stock would not be exhausted before there was a new crop that would come in. And then uh, we'll find that there were judgments here that were threatened that rise one above another in various degrees, in four separate degrees, if the people would not yield to their first chastisements that God would put upon them because of their uh, failure to obey the Lord, that He would chasten them more severely. But He still preserved, uh, He persevered to in their iniquity, and yet He did not forsake them. And then we find in this chapter also, the 26th, that the supply of food would not be so scanty that uh, instead of every family, it would be so scanty, that is, it would be so little, that every family having an oven for itself, the bread of several families would be baking in one oven because this would be uh, the so as not to lose the smallest portion of their share. They wouldn't have that much food, so they didn't need an oven in each house. They just had to bake it together. And then we find that uh, the land had to be uh, have a Sabbath of rest, as it had been tilled in the sabbatical years. Contrary to the divine command, it should now remain uncultivated. And God says also in this chapter, I will not cast them away. He would stand by His people and take care of them. When you come to the 27th chapter, and I'm just going to give you a summary of it, you have the law concerning vows. And when a man sets apart a vow, making a special offering over and above the prescribed sacrifices, such as the solemn dedication of a person or a child or any part of his property to the service of God, well, it was God would take it very serious. You know, the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, when you make a vow, God is going to expect you to pay it. And uh, you find that the sowing of a homer, a homer is about 11 bushels, and, and uh, 50 shekels is about 7 pounds. And you find the amount that was sown, and you find the value of the shekels. And uh, as firstlings were to be offered in sacrifice, it would have been uh, a mockery to make them the subject of a vow if it was devoted to God. 
we find that there are men that were of that were devoted to God in this chapter as well. But let's look at that business about vows in the book of Ecclesiastes. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And I want to give you a verse here. Look in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. And we'll find that this sums up basically what we want to say about the vows. It says in verse 4, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. If you make a vow to God, will he expect you to pay it? Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. It says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither save Say thou before an angel that it was an error. In other words, you'll say, well, you know, I really didn't mean it when you made the vow. Don't claim that that's an excuse for not keeping it. This whole pretext or the verses before it might be well for us to remember. Let me, let me just give you these verses in closing. In chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, look at it and let's kind of look at the whole situation. It says, keep thy foot. <laughs> Notice this. What are you really saying? Keep your foot out of your mouth. <laughs> keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Now, I believe this may be where you got that, putting your foot in your mouth. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. So that's what it's saying. <clears throat> you be careful how you go into the house of God, and be not rash with your mouth. Be not hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business. And a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Now that's how you keep your foot when you go into the house of God. When you vow a vow, defer not to pay it. You better pay it if you do that. And we just uh, uh, expounded that. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it thou shouldst not vow than thou shouldst vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities, but fear thou God. Multitude of dreams. You know, there are many people that seem to be guided by dreams nowadays. They say, I had a dream. Well, did you eat a hamburger too late? <laughs> and like I do with onions on it? Or whatever. But anyway, we do find that people are very prone to take uh, some, some things that are not based upon the, the revelation of the Scriptures here to let to guide them in what they do and instead of taking the Word of God to be their guide. And by the way, there's a great danger in 
and trusting in things that just come across your mind. You know, people say, well, you know, I thought. It probably gets you in trouble. Sometimes when you think, it gets you in trouble, doesn't it? Remember old Naaman? He says, I thought that this guy would surely come out and lay his hand on the place and I would be cleansed of my leprosy. Naaman? Second Kings, I believe it's chapter 5. He thought that old Elisha would come out and just do some magic over him, lay his hands on him, and, and he would be healed. Instead, Elisha sent his servant out and he says, you go tell Naaman to go down in Jordan and dip himself seven times in the river. And he said, these muddy waters? He says, the waters where I came from are clear and pure. And why should I do that? And the servant said, well, you know, Master, if he had asked you to do some great thing, you would have done that, wouldn't you? Well, certainly. But he says, how is it that you will not just do this? So finally he went down. The Bible says he went down. That may, means more than just one going down. He not only went down, but he humbled himself. And he dipped himself in Jordan seven, seven times and he came out clear as a baby. A child. That's what it tells. So anyway, sometimes we use too many our thoughts in the matter. And don't let just anything that flashes across your mind because a lot of thoughts come from the devil. And a lot of thoughts come from the flesh. And a lot of thoughts are carnal. And deal with holy things. Deal with God's Word. And the Holy Spirit will guide you in the right direction. And conscience can be helpful, but don't let, you know, people say, let your conscience be your guide. Not all together. Let conscience and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, my conscience also bearing witness with the Holy Ghost. And so the Holy Spirit is your real guide. And don't let your conscience become seared as with a hot iron. 